Thank you for joining us for this week's message from the First Christian Church in Great Bend, Kansas. Each week we share thought-provoking and life-changing teachings on topics that are important and relevant to you in your life. We hope that you will be encouraged by our weekly podcast and will tune in regularly. Now let's join the First Christian Church of Great Bend for this week's message. For the next two weeks, we're going to delve into a sermon series I like to call Return to Sender. And we're going to go through the circumstances, importance, and relevance of Jesus' resurrection and his ascension. And you may think, it's nowhere near Easter. Why are we talking about the resurrection? I wanted to, and I felt it was a great time because I believe that these two instances being the most mysterious and puzzling occurrences in the New Testament. I mean, did Jesus really raise from the dead? Why is the resurrection important to us in the first place? How can we know it happened? And why did Jesus leave the earth? Couldn't he have done a lot more good in the time he could have stayed longer? So today we're going to learn about what happened between Jesus' death and, when he, and between then and when he was resurrected. So a rich man who was secretly a disciple of Jesus named Joseph of Arimathea, he received permission from Pilate to receive Jesus' body from the cross, prepare it for burial, and he had a brand new tomb to place his body in. And Matthew 27, 60 tells us that Joseph had this new tomb cut from a mountainside, and he had a large rolling stone placed to block the entrance to the tomb. Now, the Jewish leaders went to Pilate because they remembered that Jesus said that he was going to rise on the third day. So they go to Pilate and they said, whatever means necessary, you got to protect this tomb. You got to guard it. And so Pilate turns to his uh, guards, and he gave this order, protect the tomb as best as you know how. So basically he said, whatever it takes, do it. The next day, an angel of the Lord rolls back the stone and sits on it. And the guards that were there, they witness this, and they pass out in fear. Two women find this angel sitting on the rock, and of course, they're afraid too. The angel tells the women to go and tell the disciples that Jesus had risen. Now, when the guards awoke, they went to report what had happened. All they knew is that something happened and Jesus' body is now gone. So when the religious leaders, the Jewish leaders, heard about this, they basically just started shelling out money and said, hey, don't tell anybody what happened you just need to say that the body is missing. And in fact, if someone presses you on it, say the disciples took the body. Now, <laughs> here lies the problem with that. Pilate gave those guards the absolute authority to do whatever means necessary to protect this tomb. Are we or anyone else in that time period really gonna believe that two fishermen, a tax collector, a doctor, and seven other disciples whom Jesus told them not to carry weapons were to overpower heavily armed 
very well-trained Roman guards. How likely is that? Not very. But it does bring up another question. Did someone else steal the body? Let me answer that by continuing this story. The two women who were instructed to tell the disciples, now hold on, the disciples are actually where? They're, they're in hiding. They're not out and about. They're not preaching. They're actually afraid. They're afraid that they may be persecuted, crucified, killed, just like Jesus. The women go back to the disciples and tell them what happened. But the disciples refuse to believe the women. Why? You see, in those days, women weren't exactly equal to men. Women were seen as property, almost, marginally better than slaves. Women really didn't even have a voice. And, and I can give you that analogy, excuse me, my voice is, if 200 women were to see a man murdered and two other men said, no, it was just an accident, the court system was designed in that day to believe the two men and the women's testimony would be thrown out or overruled. So you could kind of believe or un at least understand why the disciples didn't really take the words of the women first. It wasn't their cultural norm to do so. Now, although the disciples did doubt, Peter and John run out to the tomb only to find the same thing that they have already said. The stone is rolled away and that Jesus is not there. They only find the burial clothes. Now, Mary Magdalene, one of the two women mentioned in Matthew, who first came to the tomb, her reaction to what's going on speaks volumes because we don't know exactly what the disciples are thinking, but if they mirrored what she's thinking, it kind of gives us a clue. Like her, Peter and John may have been thinking that Jesus's body had been taken because Mary Magdalene is found outside the tomb crying her eyes out. And she can only wonder who or why would anybody take Jesus, take his body? And Jesus meets her there in the flesh. And at first, she doesn't recognize it. She is so overcome with all these emotions that she is just looking down and everything that she's thinking is like, wherever he is, he's dead. Wherever the body is, that's just where it is. But when she finally realizes that it's him, she immediately runs back to the disciples, but she's got something else new to say. It's not that he's not there, it's that he's here, that I saw him alive in the flesh. Now, later that night, we don't know how, again, how the disciples respond, but later that night, Jesus appears to all of the, all of the disciples except who? Thomas, right. See, I was trying to give myself some time there. <clears throat> anyway, uh, the Gospel of John mentions that the doors to the place where the disciples were, were was locked. And that's, again, telling you that the disciples are in hiding. They're not on a body-stealing mission here. And in fact, they don't want to be anywhere near Jesus or even to be known as Christ followers right now. So Jesus appears. They are afraid and they cannot believe their eyes. But Jesus encourages them for what they are seeing is not an apparition. 
It's not a hallucination. What they are seeing is Jesus risen from the dead. Now, the next time the disciples see Thomas, they tell him the same thing that Mary Magdalene had told them, that Jesus was alive and that they saw him in the flesh. Um, imagine if me and Josh were to come up on the stage today and said, we saw Jesus in the flesh. How would you respond? You'd be like, what have you guys been drinking? What did you do last night? You know, you would, you would have doubts, right? Obviously. Or at least you don't know if you'd even want to believe that. And that's where Thomas is. Thomas is like, I don't know what you guys were doing last night, but unless I can put my fingers in the holes in his hands, and if I can touch the spear wound where they stabbed him on the cross, you're not going to, I'm not going to be a believer. And so a week goes by. You would think if Jesus knows that, he would show up right then and there. But a week goes by. Sometimes your faith is not answered in a day or in a moment. Sometimes it takes a week. Sometimes it takes longer. Again, when all the disciples this time are together, again, as mentioned, they're behind locked doors. Jesus appears. And after just a short greeting, Jesus turns to Thomas and says, here, this is what you wanted, right? Put your finger here. Here. Put your hand here. And Thomas is overwhelmed. And what a wild sight that must be to see Jesus in the flesh, not in a perfect body, but in a perfectly wounded body. And I love that Jesus doesn't mock him for this. He gives him what he needs, what he asks for, to give him that faith. Now, Jesus would appear to the disciples and other believers over a period of 40 days. One of the last times, he would meet with Peter and challenge him to become the leader of this new church. And he didn't say to build a building. He didn't say to create services. He didn't say take up offerings. He simply told Peter, take care of my sheep and feed them. And so that's where the four books of the gospel end. That's the whole story of leading, you know, up to the resurrection and just barely beyond. Now, the next book, Acts, picks right up where the gospels kind of leave off. And Acts tells us of how the disciples replaced Judas with Matthias and how the early church was born and how the gospel spread. Now, before I get into all that and talking about the disciples, there is one other appearance of Jesus after death that is mentioned in 1 Corinthians 15. And let's take a, and let's read for that. Paul says, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and he appeared to Cephas and then to the 12. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters at the same time. Then he appeared to James, then all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me. So we got everything from the end of the gospels here, except one thing is added. Bible is saying not only that Jesus appeared to the disciples, to a couple of women, 
to Cephas, to Paul, but now 500 others? Like, this seems to come out of nowhere. It's almost like Paul just slipped this in there. It's like, this is, this is unbelievable to me. Even where I'm at right now, like, I, look, I could probably look at this and say, okay, that's a little unbelievable. That, that's not recorded in the Gospels. It's not recorded in Acts. You know, or, you know. So let me give you another quote that may shed some light on this. It makes some sense. About this time, there lived Jesus, a wise man, if indeed one ought to call him a man, for he performed surprising feats. He was the Christ. When Pilate condemned him to be crucified, those who had come to love him did not give up their affection for him. On the third day, he appeared, restored to life, and the tribe of Christians has not disappeared. Now, that name, who said that, may not have much of importance to you because maybe you don't know who it is. But let me tell you, Flavius Josephus is a non-Christian Roman historian. I'm sorry, he was a Jewish historian in Rome and not a Christian. And look what he writes. On the third day, he appeared restored to life. He didn't say it's conjecture that he was risen or it was said that he was risen. He actually said he was restored to life. And being a Jewish man, he had no faith to push that. It was actually, he probably would want to not say that. If that doesn't convince you, how about this quote from another non-Christian Roman historian, Cornelius Taxicus. He said, consequently, to get rid of the report, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations called Christians by the populace. Christ, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hand of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate. And a most mischievous superstition, thus checked for the moment, again broke out not only in Judea, the first source of the evil, but also in Rome. Accordingly, an arrest was first made of all who pleaded guilty. Then, upon their information, an immense multitude was convicted. Mockery of every sort was added to their deaths. They were covered with the skins of beasts. They were torn by dogs, nailed to crosses, or were doomed to the flames and burned to serve as a nightly illumination when daylight had expired. Now, the first quote from Flavius Josephus would tell us that there were reports of Jesus appearing in the flesh after he died. That would only be possible if other people other than the disciples would have saw him alive. It would have to have gone past the disciples' viewpoint. Now, remember, I said the disciples quite possibly thought Jesus' body was stolen. And to prove that there was nothing nefarious going on with them, they weren't hiding. They were behind locked doors. But no more. With Jesus back from the dead, the word started to spread fast. And the second quote tells us about how much the Christian faith spread and how Nero, the, the Roman emperor, sought to extinguish it with widespread persecution. He literally thought that if I could kill every single Christ follower, every single believer, then I can extinguish this whole faith. 
Another unnamed Roman governor once wrote a letter to Emperor Trajan saying how strong Christians were in their faith. So he would ask Christians if they truly believed that Jesus was resurrected and if they truly were believers. And if they said yes, he would ask them two to three more times, threatening to kill them if they didn't recant their faith. And most of them wouldn't give that up. And so he would end up killing thousands. So what's my point? My point is, why would the disciples go from hiding to spreading the good news about Christ if they weren't absolutely sure that he had raised from the dead? The short answer is they were convinced. They saw him multiple times. Mary Magdalene is recorded to have hugged him, Thomas to have touched him. The disciples would share a meal with them on a beach. Peter would have this one-on-one conversation and other groups of people would see him. To them, there was no doubt. And remember, again, they thought his body was stolen. They'd completely do a 180. Okay, so most of the disciples ended up being martyrs. If you didn't know that, now you do. Perhaps if you absolutely felt compelled to take a dirty little secret from your life and you have to either expose it and hurt other people or hurt yourself or take a bullet for it, maybe, just maybe, depending on how bad the lie is, maybe you'd be willing to take a bullet for it. Here's the thing. There's no guns back then. You have one choice to either recant, expose the lie, or you're gonna die a slow, torturous death. It's one or the other. So let's take a walk down misery lane and find out how the disciples died, shall we? Simon Peter would suffer a similar fate to Jesus. He would be crucified upside down, but he was only crucified that way because Peter felt himself unworthy to die in the same manner as Jesus did. Peter's brother, Andrew, allegedly suffered a similar death as well. He was also martyred by crucifixion, but like his brother, Peter, he didn't consider himself worthy to die of the same way. So he asked that he be tied and also be tied to an X-shaped cross instead of one shape like a T. James was the first of Jesus' apostles to die for following him. And he's basically one of only two apostles in the Bible that is noted as dying for his faith. And that's in Acts 12. He was beheaded. But here's another beautiful, beautiful quote from another historian, Eusebius of Caesarea, talking about James. He says, it appears that the guard who brought James into court was so moved when he saw James testify that he confessed that he too was a Christian. So they were both taken away together. And on the way, the guard asked James to forgive him. James thought for a moment. Then he said, I wish you peace. And he kissed him. So both were beheaded at the same time. John is traditionally regarded as the only apostle to die of old age. Um, John was exiled to the island of Patmos where he would write his epistles 
and he would also write the book of Revelation. But before then, he was, before he was banished by the Romans, he was brought into the Colosseum and he was dunked in a huge vat of burning, boiling oil. And when they pulled him out, he emerged unhurt, unharmed. And it was said by many historians that many in the crowd gave their life to Christ that day because they had no other way to explain it. Philip was martyred in the ancient city of Heropolis in, Greek, in Greece. Philip, his crime was he converted a governor's wife. And the governor was so infuriated by that that he took Philip and Bartholomew and crucified them both upside down. But Philip, even while on the cross, continued to preach, continued to just talk about the good news. The crowd was so moved by what Philip was saying that they begged the governor to take both of them off the cross and let them live. Philip did, did not let them take him off, but Bartholomew was spared. Now, while Bartholomew may have survived that instance, tradition tells us that he was actually skinned alive and beheaded in India. In India, do you realize how far that is from Israel? He was in India. <laughs> Thomas was martyred also in India, where he was stabbed with multiple spears. Matthew's martyrdom would take place in Ethiopia, half a world away again from Israel. He was killed with a halberd. If you don't know what that is, it's basically a spear slash battle axe weapon. James, son of Alphaeus, was pushed from the top of a, of a temple where he was preaching, where he actually survived that. A mob beat him with clubs. He survived that. And they decided, well, we're going to finish the job, and they stoned him. Jude exercised demons out of idols, which, when they came out of those idols, destroyed the temple of false gods. The religious leaders in Syria, where he was, were so infuriated that they killed him with an ax. There are numerous accounts of Simon the Zealot's death, but the earliest records say that he was martyred in the kingdom of Iberia, which is modern-day Spain. Matthias was stoned either at the end of his ministry to cannibals in Ethiopia, which is modern-day Georgia, or by Jews in Jerusalem. Paul was beheaded by Emperor Nero, Nero sometime before AD 68. So, who in their right mind would die for something they knew was false or fabricated or just simply untrue. If this were to be the conspiracy, this was one of the worst ones ever ran, okay? Because not only did everybody have to be in on it, but everyone would have to give up either their life or their freedom. And not only that, if you look at the entire early church, everybody within the early church has to be in on it too because there's widespread persecution all the way from when Jesus dies somewhere around AD 30 something, well into close to AD 80. There's gonna be, and so that lie has to live for over 50 years and has to be kept and has to be covered by the blood of all these people who are just telling 
in spreading a false truth? Or did Jesus really rise from the dead? That's the only two things. It's either one or the other. So you can and you should have confidence in Jesus' resurrection, the validity of it. I mean, I don't know about you, but if someone were to come up to me and I had to choose between recanting my faith or dying a slow, horrible death, I don't know if I can do that. And I know the truth. I don't know if I could do that. I'm not conditioned in this first world situation to where I have this freedom. I'm not conditioned to, to suffer like that. So I don't know if I could. But when I look at this, it gives me confidence. So we have to deal with one other question. Why is the resurrection so important? In short, it is this simple. It proves that Jesus was who he said he was. Because if he wasn't resurrected, then everything he's ever said about eternal life or preparing a place for you in heaven, I hate to say is total crap. If he didn't resurrect, then all that is untrue. Because if God cannot control death and offer peace in an evil world, then what is our faith even for? The early church actually believed that when Jesus died, that he had a confrontation with Satan and that he took the keys of hell from him meaning that Satan no longer controls his own domain and that one day, what John even, you know, kind of uh, confirms is that Satan will find his end, that even Satan will be destroyed. So the resurrection is the fulfillment of hope. Without it, I hate to say, we would be another world religion with a dead founder in the ground. The resurrection is so important is, is why we not only celebrate what he did for us on the cross, but it is so powerful that we now can celebrate an empty tomb. It is so powerful, the message of Easter, that it brings people who don't even believe in Jesus to church. You realize that? It is so powerful that he said, yeah, for this one time, I got to come to church. Mm. Our whole faith would crumble without the resurrection. That's why it's important to talk about it, not only at Easter, but even now. So let's close with this scripture from 1 Corinthians 15. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who also have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people to be most pitied.
Mm. I tell you this today because there should be no pity. There should only be room for confidence and faith. So all I ask you to do is bask in that confidence and that faith. Let us pray. Father God, thank you so much that indeed all truth is your truth. Thank you that we can look not only just within the Bible, not only through the revelations you've given to our hearts and minds, but we can look back through history and know that you are moving even within those who are not your followers. That we can look within historical record and find things to be excited about. We thank you that you use everything. Scripture says that use everything for the good of those who love you. And we are saying today that we love you, that we accept this truth, and we ask that it not only changes our lives, but that it changes who we are, that we should be people that not hide behind our faith or behind a locked door, not be buried in doubt, but that we can be people that serve and love others and confidently talk about what you mean for a dying world. And we thank you so much. In Jesus' name, amen. You are invited back next week for another life-changing message from the First Christian Church of Great Bend, Kansas. Please check out our website at www.fccgbk.com. That's fccgbk.com. May you have a blessed week.